Uh, it's very faint. It's not disturbing at all. Okay, good. Uh, I think the uh, Spanish church that meets here is having a worship service. I thought that was Friday, but I guess it's Thursday, so uh, we can deal with that as long as it's not distracting. Uh, no, you don't even hear it all the time. It's just occasionally. Great. Okay, sounds good. We will keep going then. Uh, we're about halfway through, or we're further than halfway through. That first chunk uh, is the largest portion because uh, of the sim symbolism in it. It's a little uh, more uh, footwork that we have to do. But uh, moving on to Revelation 12, 6 through 12, uh, this is going to be Satan's expulsion from heaven. Uh, but we begin here with um, the flight of the woman. This is actually, um, this expulsion of Satan from heaven is a parenthesis uh, in the, the events that are happening here in chapter 12. Uh, the primary emphasis is what's going on with Israel during this time. What's going on with national Israel at the midpoint of the tribulation. The parenthetical information um, is going to come between uh, verse 6 and verse 13. Uh, so we here open up the parenthetical, uh, or we open up the parenthesis here. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. So at this point in, the, in chapter 12, at verse 6, we are in the present time, um, which is in focus in uh, Revelation. So this is future to us, but in the present uh, trajectory of the narrative in Revelation 12. Uh, Revelation 12 is yet another parenthetical um, pause within the overall um, trajectory of the, of the book. Remember, Revelation is primarily chronological. The only time that chronology breaks down is when we're given a parenthetical, which uh, gives us either background information or a song of hope sung by the heavenly hosts at times. These are pretty easy to identify. They happen between the sixth and seventh um, judgments in whatever uh, trumpets, seals, or bowls we are in. So between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, there was a parenthesis, uh, which was uh, chapter seven, Revelation chapter seven, the 144,000. That was a parenthetical. Uh, we had a parenthesis between the sixth and the seventh uh, trumpet, and that was chapter 11. Uh, but now we also add a parenthesis between the seventh trumpet and the opening or the pouring out of the first bowl of wrath. And we'll see that that is also consistent with the bowls, that there will be a parenthetical between the sixth and the seventh bowl, and then also after the seventh bowl is poured out. And this is our largest parenthetical right in the middle of the book. It's chapters 12 through 14, where the chronological order is not going to be precise, but we're going to be given a lot of background information as well. So hopefully that uh, helps us to understand what's going on here. So this woman fleeing will be present time at the midpoint of the tribulation. She will flee into the wilderness for uh, 1,260 days. Uh, that number should be familiar to us at this point. 
this is spoken of in Matthew 24 by Christ himself when he's talking to the disciples about the future tribulation on Israel. Um, and he says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand now this abomination of desolation, we're going to look at in greater detail next week because that is the focused event in chapter 13 of Revelation. Um, but we continue here in Matthew 24, verse 16, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in the house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. The Lord continues, but pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So this is specifically talking about the very end of the age. Um, preterists will try to interpret this as the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Unfortunately, it's very ignorant of Jewish history just in general. 70 AD was not the greatest uh, persecution, the greatest tribulation that they ever incurred. In fact, uh, it's, it would be very easy to make an argument that uh, the treatment of the Jews under Nazi, uh, under Nazi Germany was uh, far greater persecution than occurred in 70 AD. Uh, so this is simply historically ignorant um, to make the argument that this has already passed. Uh, this is a future event, the Great Tribulation. And at that time, Israel will be persecuted far worse than they ever have before. That will exceed even the persecution under Hitler in Germany. Uh, and she will be persecuted for, or she will be hidden away in the mountains, rather, for 1,260 days. This is the Great Tribulation, our red box here in our Tribulation timeline the second set of 1,260 days. The first set is referred to as 42 months. Um, back in our earlier book, I think that was Revelation 11. It may have been Revelation 10 that we encountered these time periods. I think it was Revelation 11. Um, and then the, the 1,000 year kingdom yet to come with the gaps of 30 days and 45 days that are probably transitions in the dispensation um, in which old things are purified and new things are established um, by the Lord. So this 1,260 days puts us in our final days of the tribulation period. Uh, now, a quick outline of chapter 12, now that we've jumped into the book a bit so we can orient ourselves a bit better. Verses 1 through 5, which we already looked at, look at the cosmic war which has been raging from the very beginning of sin until the Redeemer um, ascended into heaven. Then it jumps over the period of the church because the church is not in view at all in the context here. We're not looking at the church. Therefore, prophets, as they usually do, uh, skip over that which is not in view and continue the line uh, as if it had not been paused here in dealing with the church. 
we call these prophetic mountaintops where the prophet looks from one mountaintop to the next and he skips over the valley that's in between. This isn't shown to the prophets because the prophets are not concerned with that period of time. So the church age intercedes between verse five and verse six. Verse six then is the future, uh, the future flights of Israel into the mountains um, where they will flee from Satan the, uh, and Satan's henchmen, uh, the, the Antichrist. Uh, verses seven through 12 are gonna tell us about the expulsion of Satan. That's our present uh, verses that we're looking at. The next section is going to be uh, a little back and forth. We'll remind ourselves of verse six, that the woman has fled to the mountains. Verses 13, 15, and 17 will show Satan's wrath. Verses 14 and 16 will show God's protection during Satan's wrath. So that's our context here that we're looking at. And with that, we move into the expulsion of Satan. And we see that it happens during a war that is yet future that will take place in the heavenly spheres, not on earth. Uh, so we read in verse 7, and there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, the dragon and his angels waged war, and they, that being the dragon's angels, were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So here's where we have the symbolism of the stars indirectly interpreted for us, that just as the, uh, the great dragon had swept a third of the stars away, so here we see a third of the angels, or it simply says the angels being thrown down with him. Uh, so this is not the strongest evidence that we would like to have, uh, but it is more than a good guess that those stars are symbolic of these angels that are thrown down together with him. Uh, still a good thing to know that it's a third of the angels and not a half or two thirds. Uh, the Lord's armies are still larger, not to mention stronger. Um, however, even if every angel had turned um, against God and had joined the armies of Satan, still God alone is on an entirely different sphere, an entirely different plane, and is incapable of being defeated. Um, that creator-creature distinction is often lost in the mind of Satan. And we're going to look at here how he, how he being such a, a, uh, an intelligent being, is unable to see his sure defeat. Uh, so here we see the star of the morning mentioned in Isaiah 14. Now, I brought this up a little earlier, uh, that this is where uh, Satan exalts himself or says that he will exalt himself above the throne. He's going to give us five different I will statements, um, inserting his will over God's will, um, as if his will alone can exalt him that high. But here is God's estimation of Satan. He says, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. He continues, but you said in your heart, so here comes the five I will statements, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, 
I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High. This last one, that's the, uh, that is the temptation that he presented to Eve. We see that he himself succumbed to his own temptation um, to become like the Most High. But God says, nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Now, this is again uh, pictured in a different way in Ezekiel 28, uh, starting in verse 12, where Satan is spoken of as the king of Tyre. This isn't uncommon. The king of Persia or the prince of Persia was also an angel which Gabriel uh, fought with and Michael came to his aid. Here, the king of Tyre, there's never been a king like this on earth. Uh, this king can only be Satan. And so it is interpreted by, uh, by Bible students of all stripes as being Satan. So we read, son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. So again, the question has to be asked, why is Satan not wise enough to see that his doom is imminent? Uh, but we continue. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. So we see that he was not only an angel of God, but he was extremely exalted. He was probably uh, the worship leader or the protector of the throne of God. So he was not a run-of-the-mill angel, but he was an incredibly beautiful angel and God says the seal of perfection was in him but he continues here uh, you were the anointed cherub who covers and I placed you there you were on the holy mountain of God you walked in the midst of the stones of fire you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you continuing in verse 16 by the abundance of your trade probably worship, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. So his position in heaven as the worship leader uh, has been removed from him. But this is uh, the verse that bears most on our context here. Ezekiel 28, verses 17 through 18. He says, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. So his pride has corrupted his wisdom. He is no longer able to see his imminent destruction because he is blinded by pride. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you by the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade. You profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. So this is prophetically looking forward to that period in which he will be on the earth, and he will be destroyed in the presence of those nations which he has beguiled since time began. Uh, so it says then in these verses, in our context in Revelation 12, that Satan was cast from heaven. There was no longer a place found for him and his angels. Uh, if church dogma uh, remained our uh, 
our method of interpretation, this would be pretty hard to interpret, but we must hold the text above church tradition and recognize that Satan do, does still have a place in heaven. He does not currently reside in hell. In fact, hell is currently unoccupied, as will become quite clear at the end of Revelation when it becomes occupied for the first time. Um, but right now, Satan is the accuser of man before God. Uh, he has access to the throne room of God, and he is a very unwelcomed presence there. Uh, that's what the rest of our current section is going to look at. We see in Job 1, 6 through 7, that Satan does indeed have access to the throne room of God. We read, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves, that is the angels, the sons of God, those born, born directly from God and not uh, through propagation. They came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Now, in case you're worried that this is a scribal error, um, it is repeated in Job 2. Um, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Before the Lord on his throne, we might add. We see in chapters, or, yeah, chapters 38 and on that the Lord remains on his throne throughout this uh, throughout the events of Job. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around it. So he has come from the domain of the earth, from walking around on it, the domain which he owns, uh, the domain which he is sovereign over in a limited sense in which uh, the theocratic administration has been lost to Satan, the great usurper. Uh, he departs from walking around on the earth in order to present himself before the Lord, and he presents himself as the accuser of man. Uh, we read in Revelation 12.10, which is about to arrive in our context, it says, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. Uh, that is Satan's current occupation is accusing God's people uh, before the throne of God. That's why it's important in uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, where we see Jesus Christ as our advocate. But we see that the throne room of God does function as a holy courtroom in which Satan casts an accusation. accusation and Jesus Christ responds, my blood has covered that. Uh, we continue to look at Satan's activity in Zechariah 3, uh, verses 1 through 2. Uh, it says, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at the right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So we see that Satan does accuse mankind before the Lord, and the Lord rebukes him. Uh, a very similar situation here where Michael encounters Satan 
And Michael also says, the Lord rebuke you. He does not say, I rebuke you. Uh, it is unto the Lord whose blood has covered our sins uh, that Satan may be rebuked in his accusations against mankind. Uh, again, we see Michael appearing in that context in Daniel, or sorry, uh, in Jude. But here in Daniel 10, 12 through 13, we see more angelic warfare. It says, then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia, again, we are interpreting that as an angel based on the context. He was withstanding me for 21 days. I might ask you what man could wrestle with an angel in warfare for 21 days, and especially one that that angel could not quickly overcome nor overcome without help. He says, then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Michael is also referred to as a prince, uh, the chief prince of God. Here, princes, which is the Hebrew word malek, is the same as the word for king, but it is also used as the word for angel in the Old Testament. So it's probably probably uh, simply a matter of interpretation here uh, to call them princes in the text rather than to simply call them angels in the text. Chief prince probably means archangel uh, in the Greek. Uh, the angelic battle continues and we see that Gabriel uh, and Michael are the defenders of Israel says, then he said, do you understand why I come to you? That's Gabriel speaking to Daniel. But I shall re now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. So this is the Lord through his angelic messengers pulling back the folds for us so that we can look into this angelic realm, to the angelic battles happening outside of our, uh, outside of our line of sight. Uh, we see that there are princes over nations. These are angels set over nations, uh, over the, the, uh, the ungodly nations, the goat nations, we could say, are set demons. Uh, but Michael is especially the prince over Israel, who comes to Israel's defense against the spiritual forces of darkness, which rage against them. Uh, a similar battle rages today, uh, but it is different uh, than we see in the Old Testament. Uh, though it's not different on the angelic side, it's in, it is different on our side. Uh, Ephesians 6, 11 through 12 tells us, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For your struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Our, uh, our fight is not against those who are lost on this earth. It is not against the unredeemed. Our goal is to share with them the gospel of Christ so that they might come to a salvation in Christ through faith. Uh, our enemy is the spiritual forces of darkness behind 
behind those men who have deceived them, who have blinded them from the gospel of God. So says 2 Corinthians 4, 4. So we want to understand that just as in the Old, Old Testament, so in the New Testament age, the age of the church, these angelic battles rage behind the scenes. Nothing new will be occurring um, during the tribulation, except that it will be uh, reaching a fever pitch uh, in which the final battle of the angels is about to take place, and it takes place at the midpoint of the tribulation. And at that time, uh, when Satan is thrown down to the earth, no longer to occupy heaven, heaven will rejoice because the accuser of mankind is no longer standing in the throne room of God, accusing mankind day and night. So we read in, in uh, verses 10 through 12 of chapter 12 in Revelation. Now the sal or, then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down he who accuses them before our God day and night. Now this day and night is the same Greek phrase used to talk about the praises of the four angelic beings that stand before the throne of God singing God's praise. So there is a contention even now in heaven where Satan is throwing libelous accusations against the redeemed of Christ, while at the same time uh, God is being praised by the angelic voices. Now, when we encounter this in chapters 4 and 5, uh, we saw no sign of Satan accusing the brothers. Uh, that does not mean that Satan was not there present, but it means that his power of accusation uh, is far weaker than the praise of the redeemed of God and of the angelic realms, uh, so that although he is a constant thorn in his side uh, from the moment he first fell, uh, in the purview of eternity, uh, that will not be the case. And so weak is his accusation that it is so insignificant in heaven. But we continue. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives, even when faced with death. Now, this is speaking about the brothers whom Satan is accusing from heaven uh, or has been accusing from heaven. This is looking down on earth on those who are still remaining um, and saying that they are overcoming him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the testimony, which is the word of God, uh, and that they don't love their lives even when faced with death. Now, this is, again, specifically speaking of national Israel, which has come to faith in the second half of the tribulation. And it says, for this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Now this, uh, uh, this is a troublesome verse, not for us, because we will not be there. Uh, but seeing the, the free reign that Satan has over the earth today, and the greatness of his power over the earth and over his, uh, over his spiritual darkness, uh, it is quite disturbing to see that one day this power will be increased in the sense that he will be cast down to this earth and his rage will be exacerbating 
by the shortness of his time so that we know it can get a lot worse than it is. And Jesus also recognizes this and warns of this. Uh, we've already seen in Matthew 24, verses 15 and on, but we're going to look at 9 through 14 because Jesus gives a summary statement of the spiritual battle that will be raging during that tribulation time. He says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation, and they will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And that, again, is a physical salvation, as we will look forward to. Um, this is not speaking of eternal salvation. Those who are enduring to the end are enduring because they have been um, saved and sealed. Uh, those, those who are saved physically at the end will not actually be saved um, if they have not put their trust in Jesus Christ, which is the only method of receiving eternal salvation. This is speaking of physical salvation of national Israel. Uh, this, or this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Uh, Isaiah 59 also speaks of this, again, speaking to national Israel, the seed of Jacob, not the seed of Abraham. So the seed of Abraham also does refer to the physical seed of Abraham. Uh, when it's speaking of, uh, of the seed of Jacob, it, it simply becomes impossible to argue anything except the physical line of Israel, national Israel. So we read in Isaiah 59, verse 20, a redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, in Israel, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit, which is upon you, and my words, which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. So this is looking forward to... The end of the tribulation when the Lord returns to Zion and saves those who are left alive at the end of the tribulation, the remnant of Israel, those who will continue to propagate during the millennial kingdom, those who retain mortal bodies who will have offspring and their offspring will have offspring during that millennium. Uh, in Romans 11, 25 to 27, we also see this promise. From Paul, he says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of, gen of the Gentiles has come in. Now remember that time of the Gentiles begins with Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon and continues uh, up until that final Roman Empire, which will be conquered by the Lord. Uh, you can see... Uh, Daniel chapter 7 for details on that. We'll look, uh, we've already looked at that before. And it says, And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, all Israel here being converted Israel at the end of the tribulation, uh, not all Israel today. Uh, they will need to put their faith personally in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved, but their physical salvation will come 
at the end of the tribulation, and it says the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul is expecting uh, that his audience understands the gospel of the kingdom preached throughout Jewish history. Uh, now this, uh, this is going to be important because of the mark of the beast uh, that will arrive at the midpoint of the tribulation when the Antichrist um, is, is revived after a fatal wound. Uh, so we read in Revelation 13, 15, and it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast. This is speaking about the false prophet. Um, he will give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all the men, uh, he causes all the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Uh, so the wrath of the Antichrist will be against all those who refuse to take the mark of the beast. And so at that point, uh, there is basically a death sentence out on all those uh, who have been converted to Christ during the period of the tribulation. But it says they have overcome because of uh, the blood of the Lamb. And that overcoming has been spoken of already by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 54-57, when he says, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, that is, when the mortal puts on the immortal, uh, then will come about the saying that is written. This uh, comes from prophecies in Isaiah and Hosea, I believe. Uh, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so at the end of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 4, uh, we see this, uh, this mark, uh, the penalty of not worshiping the mark of the beast, seen from heaven's perspective. And it says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now again, it is important uh, not to read more into the text than is said. Those who are faithful uh, during the tribulation will reign together with Christ. Those who are unfaithful, but those who have put their faith in Christ, uh, they will not be banished to hell, but rather they will not share a throne with Christ. They will not rule under Christ, uh, but they will be given access to the kingdom, though they will not inherit it. Uh, and this, again, uh, we see written about by Paul. Paul is very concerned with the eternal security of believers, and he always makes a distinction between eternal security through faith alone and Christ alone, 
and the conditional rewards that arise out of faithfulness to the rule of life. So 2 Timothy 2, 10 through 13 reads, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. And the context chosen here is not speaking of elect in the church, but elect people of God, the Jewish nation. He is enduring suffering so that he might uh, bring about the salvation of his people, of the Jews. Remember, he is from the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Jew of Jews, um, a Pharisee of Pharisees. So he continues, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it, and with it eternal glory. So his concern is for the salvation of Israel. He wants to see his brothers saved so that they might obtain the salvation which is in Christ. And together with the salvation, he also hopes that they will receive eternal glory. Not just that they will be saved, but that they will also be glorified as rulers in the kingdom. That is clarified in the following statements that he makes. He says, it is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, which is true of all believers, we will also live with him. If we endure, now that is different than having died. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. But here he puts a capstone on that eternal security passage. And he says, if we are faithless, if our faith fails, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. He has promised life to those who have put faith in him, but he has not promised rewards to those whose faith falters, to those who do not rest in his promises. Um, so that we see if we have died with him, that's true of all, all Christians, even if our faith fails, he remains faithful to us. However, our rewards in heaven are conditioned upon endurance. If we deny the Lord, we have not endured. That does not ban us from heaven that does not preclude those from entering the kingdom but it does reduce their position in heaven to whatever degree they have not endured or to whatever degree they have denied the lord uh, in fact to deny the lord here in this context would preclude them from ruling or reigning at all in the kingdom um, however the degree of their endurance um, if they suffer trials uh, faithfully as james tells us uh, they will receive rewards for their endurance. Uh, so that is what is in view here, and it's often taken out of its context to mean uh, eternal salvation, that it, it, uh, uh, it's, it's not a passage about eternal salvation and whether or not they will be saved eternally. It is a passage about will they be ruling in the kingdom. So here is the rule of life and the spirits and power. And in Galatians 5, 24 to 26, we read, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. This is a perfect, uh, perfect tense. They have crucified the flesh since they belong to Christ. It says, if we live by the spirit, let us also walk by the spirit. So we live by means of the spirit. We are alive because the spirit indwells us. And he says, because this is true of us, let's walk. Because this is true of us, let's walk by the same power that we were saved. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another or envying one another. So this says, it's all by the spirit's power. It is not by our own power to overcome. It is not by our own power to repent. It is by the power of Christ through faith alone 
so that there is nothing we can boast about. Unfortunately, uh, as soon as we move into works salvation, uh, we get a puffed up image of ourselves thinking that we are overcoming by our own power. The greater the challenges, the harder this is to maintain because as we try to succeed on our own merit and not by resting in the spirit, um, it becomes harder to delude ourselves into thinking that we are really as, uh, as capable of overcoming in our own power as we, as we are. Uh, we're not capable of serving the Lord by our own power. We're not capable, even after our salvation, of doing works uh, that are glorifying of the Lord. In fact, it says we must walk by the Spirit, having begun in the Spirit. Why then do we revert to the law? We don't. Um, so this is going to be just as true then uh, in, during the tribulation period. Though they don't have the Spirit indwelling them in the same way that the church does, they still have the same spiritual faculties available to them as Old Testament Israel did, uh, so that uh, they have the promise of eternal life and their obedience to the rule of life is going to uh, elevate them or preclude them uh, from ruling together with Christ. And that is what is in view uh, in their overcoming and their salvation at the end of the tribulation. So when Satan is expelled from heaven as the accuser of man, he exercises unrestrained wrath on the Jewish nation, knowing that his time is fast coming to an end. The Jewish nation is the promised uh, heir to the kingdom of Christ. That heir or that uh, kingdom of the earth is currently Satan's. So he is going to go after the heir of that kingdom so as to destroy them. If he is able to destroy Israel, then there is no one for whom the Lord can give or to whom the Lord can give that kingdom. Um, however, Satan has overlooked the fact that they have already overcome uh, by means of the blood of Christ, uh, that they will be resurrected, that uh, death has no sting over them, has no power over them. So his goal is the kingdom uh, majesty, which he has envied since the beginning, and possessing it now over the earth, he seeks to maintain at least what he has, though we know that his ultimate goal would be the impossible, uh, which is to elevate himself above the throne of God, uh, his pride has blinded him to think that that is possible. So he acts irrationally uh, because he's corrupted in his mind, in his wisdom. Uh, his efforts cannot prevail against Israel because uh, Jesus has already won that war. Uh, 